0: blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you ladies for sharing that with us this morning. Good to be with you this morning. I want to remind you where we are in this series that uh, we began back on the first Sunday of April, and it's entitled Fool, because the Bible says it is the fool that has said in his heart, there is no God. I believe that it's quite foolish to say or to believe there's no God but I believe there's another kind of foolishness or another kind of atheism that's even more dangerous to the church of Jesus Christ than actual real or true atheism and that is practical atheism theologian R.C. Sproul is the one that said he's maybe the one that even coined this phrase but he said what is deadly to the church is when the external forms of religion are maintained While their substance is discarded. We call this practical atheism. And practical atheism, the atheist, the true atheist, believes, or at least claims he believes, that there is no God. The practical atheist affirms the existence of God. In fact, will even say that he believes in God, but he lives as if God doesn't exist. Just goes about his merry little way, or her merry little way, and with no thought of God in any way unless they happen to be in trouble. According to the scriptures, the fool that says there is no God. But with God's help in this series, I want to show you that it's also the fool who says there is a God, but lives like there is no God. The first Sunday, we talked about how some people live as if they have to give account to no one. I can live like I want to live. I can do like I want to do. I can call myself a Christian, and God's going to let me into heaven anyway. It doesn't really matter. He overlooks my sin. He excuses my sin. And I'm just going to be able to get away with it. There's nobody I have to account to. Well, that's just not true. We looked at that the first Sunday. Last Sunday we talked about how the practical atheist has no trust or no confidence in God. They believe that, they, or they think in the back of their mind, or, or maybe even in the front of their mind, God just, uh, just doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. I'm just small and insignificant to God. Or they say, God doesn't forgive me. God can't forgive me. My sin is too great. My sins are too many. God can't forgive me. Or maybe they think that God doesn't act on their behalf. God just doesn't do what I ask Him to do. I pray and, and nothing seems to happen. It just goes on just the way it's always going on. And they have no trust, no confidence in God. Well, today I want to share with you another evidence, evidence number three of a practical atheist. All of these are evidences. Each week we're examining evidences of practical atheism to see is this true in my life, is this the way I'm living? Am I living like a practical atheist? I say there is a God. In fact, I cannot stand the fact that there are people who, who march against our God and, and who are rallying and lobbying in, in Washington against our God and against our faith. But yet, am I living like a practical atheist? Am I living a life that like I don't have to give account to God? Am I living a life like I don't have any trust and confidence in God? Am I living a life like there's no fellowship? And there are three manifestations of this evidence number three. And the first one is, this person, this practical atheist, has no acknowledgement or no awareness of God's presence. Now, Adam and Eve, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, that when they had taken the fruit from the tree and ate of it, that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And it says in chapter 4 that after Cain had murdered Abel, that he went out from the presence of the Lord. So here are two, three people that at least acknowledged God's presence, but yet they wanted to act like he wasn't there. They didn't want to acknowledge it. They wanted to hide from it. And why did Adam and Eve, why did Cain want to act like God was not there? They sinned. It's exactly right. You see, when you're in sin, you want to act like God's not there. You want to hide from His presence, as if you really could hide from His presence. Moses, on the opposite hand, in chapter 33, as they're out in the wilderness, God promises them, He says, My presence will go with you. And Moses replied, if your presence does not go with us, then do not bring us up from here. Moses acknowledged how much he needed the presence of the Lord in his life. Then we find a prophet of God named Jonah. Jonah was commanded by God, go and preach repentance to the Ninevites because I am about to destroy them. For their wickedness is great. Jonah didn't want to go. It says that he fled From the presence of the Lord. In Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16. We find that those who are being judged during the great tribulation on the earth. That they will say to the mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand. The followers of the antichrist are begging to be spared. From the presence of God. You see, sinners don't want to be in God's presence. Those that are running from God do not want to acknowledge or be aware that He is there. That's why atheists are atheists, in my opinion. Because if there is a God, then there is an absolute right and wrong. And if there is an absolute right and wrong, then their life will be measured by that absolute. And they don't want their life measured by any absolute. So we have to live, we have to say, we have to claim there is no God. But yet Christians, quote, unquote, and I use that term very loosely in this context, Christians, people who who sit in churches week after week, they want to live in sin, do their own thing, and pretend that God's not there. But yet when they die, where do they want to go? They want to go to heaven. That's a practical atheist. In fact, in pra- I'm not so sure that's Christianity at all. They want to live as if God is not there. But you remember what the Bible says in Psalm 139. David said, where can I go from your spirit? Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You see, Jesus said that those that are evil love the darkness. But see, they think they're hiding. You know, I've never been in a bar room, but I understand they're pretty dark. Why? Hiding, She can't hide from God. The darkness and the light are alike. An atheist and a Christian were engaged in an intense public debate. On the blackboard behind the podium, the atheist printed in large capital letters, God is nowhere. When the Christian rose to offer his rebuttal, he rubbed out the W at the beginning of where, of the word where... And added that letter to the preceding word, no. So the statement then read, God is now here. Listen, you can't go from the presence of God. In fact, the only place you can go from the presence of God is hell. You say, wait a minute, didn't David just say if I make my bed in hell? The word there is Hades, the abode of the dead. David's referring to one who is actually a follower of Christ, not one who is going to go and spend uh, uh, eternity in the lake of fire. The only place you can go apart from God, there is no God-forsaken place on the the face of this earth. But there is a God-forsaken place, and it's called hell. And that's going to be the worst part of hell. All the flames will be bad. The torture, the torment will be bad. But the worst part will be that you will be forever separated. If you miss heaven because of of your lack of faith in Jesus Christ, because of your living apart from Him in this world, if you miss heaven, the worst part of hell will be the lack of the presence of God. Now, who goes there? Those that didn't want His presence here. How can you call yourself a Christian and, and live like God doesn't exist here, but yet you want to spend eternity with Him there? That doesn't compute. That makes no sense. It's illogical. Why would you want to spend eternity with him when you don't want to spend five minutes a day with him, 15 minutes a day with him? Talk to him throughout the, throughout the day. That doesn't compute. That's a practical atheist, in fact, a lost person, in my opinion. But I'm not the judge. You don't have to stand before me on Judgment Day. You're not standing before me this morning. We're all standing before the all-seeing, all-present <laughs> God. So evidence number three of practical atheism is there's no fellowship. Manifestation of of that is there's no acknowledgement of God's presence. That's why the Bible says when Peter preached at Pentecost, actually it was after Pentecost, after they healed the, the lame man at the temple, at the conclusion of that message he said to repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, God calls us to repent. Stop living like I'm not here. Start acknowledging that I am here, that you are accountable, that I am willing to forgive your sin, I am willing to save you. Acknowledge me, accept me as, my, as your Lord and Savior and, and the one who died on the cross for your sins. Repent. And be converted, be changed, so that your sins will be blotted out. And then you will enjoy times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Do you enjoy refreshment in God's presence? Brother Lawrence, in fact, if you haven't read this book, it's just a little book. Uh, it, It may not even be in print anymore. It was a few years ago. Life Action is where I got it from when they were here. But it's called the the practice of the presence of God. Brother Lawrence, he was a monk, but uh, uh, I'm not suggesting you become a monk. But here's what he said. The most holy practice, the nearest to daily life, and the most essential for the spiritual life is the practice of the presence of God. That is to find joy in His divine company and to make it a habit of life, speaking humbly, and conversing lovingly with him at all times, every moment without rule or restriction, above all at times of temptation, distress, dryness, and revulsion, and even in times of faithlessness and sin, which is when we don't want to acknowledge God's presence. And see, that's the trap of Satan. That's how... That's what he wants you, that's what he wanted Adam and Eve to think, Cain to think, Jonah to think, you and I to think. When you sin, I've got to hide from God. Listen, if you want to stay in sin, yeah, you're going to feel that way. But God wants you, when you fail, to come back to him. Expose it to his light. Acknowledge it. Confess it. And forsake it. And you'll find forgiveness. You'll find cleansing. And you'll find the refreshment and the longing of your soul fulfilled. And that's the second manifestation of this evidence of those who live with no fellowship. They have no desire for God. They have no desire for God. They have have a stronger desire for the things of the world. And, And Paul warns us in Colossians 3. If, there's the condition, if, if. You were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then we're warned in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. You see, the desire for things of this world are stronger in a practical atheist life than the desire for God. They have no desire for God or little desire for God and a strong pull for the things of the world. William Wilberforce, who was persecuted for his faith, in fact, he was the one that defended And stood for abolition in England. He said, remember, Christianity proposes not to extinguish our natural desires. It promises to bring those desires under just control and to direct them to their true object. In the case of both riches and of honor, it maintains the consistency of its character. But Christianity commands us not to set our hearts on earthly treasures. It reminds us that we have in heaven a better and more enduring substance than this world can bestow. Let me ask you, what do you really want? In fact, what I've discovered in my own life as well as in observation is that we really have what we really want. You're going to live for what you want. And that's the crux of the matter. Answer that question. What do I really want? What do I really desire? If it's the things of this world, that's what you're going to live for. If it's for God, that's what you really want. Then that's who you'll live for. You see, the practical atheist has no desire for God's Word. You would be surprised to hear the statistics of the number of churchgoers, Sunday morning churchgoers... And so-called Christians who actually pick up this book on a day other than Sunday. In fact, some of you know you're one of those. Some of you hadn't picked it up all week. You picked it up and brought it to church. But that's the first time you picked it up since last Sunday. And sometimes when you do pick it up, it's to rush through it because you're so busy, you've got, quote-unquote, more important things to do. It's a practical atheist. You have no hunger. For the word of God. When Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2. As newborn babes. Desire the sincere pure milk of the word. Now he's not calling you a baby. Now Paul would in 1 Corinthians. I mean I would. If if you're not really hungry for the word. You're a baby. If you're saved at all. You're you're an infant Christian. But what he's saying is. Just as a baby. A newborn infant desires for its mother's milk. That's the way we are to desire the Word of God. And as the mother's milk is what adds nourishment to help that baby grow, the Word of God gives us the nourishment we need to help us grow as Christians. But the atheist and the practical atheist, the ones sitting in the pews week after week, or who call themselves Christians, they have no desire for the Word of God. And it's evidenced by the dust that gathers during the week. Or the rush and the, the way we approach it. There's no desire for the reason we ignore God's word. One of them is because we really don't want God's wisdom. We think we can do it on our own. In fact, subconsciously, when we ignore the word of God, we're literally saying, God, I got this. Well, God's going to bring you to a, one of those situations where he's going to teach you, you don't got this. Some of you are in those situations right now and you've lived like a practical atheist and all of a sudden you realize, hey, I do need God. If you're a child of God, he's going to bring you to those times. If you're living without him, you think you're doing okay without him, he's going to bring you to a difficult time in your life where you realize you've got to have him. That's what Proverbs 3 says. Tr- do not, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. He says in verse Uh, 12, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you can desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all those who retain her. And so the practical atheists, they have no desire for wisdom. They think they got it. They'll figure it out. But God wants you to know what he says. There's no desire for God's worship. I'm not talking about, you know, because there's plenty of practical atheists that show up for church on Sunday. But I'm talking about personal, private worship, not corporate worship. This is easy, y'all. I mean, it's kind of easy to show up and just join in with what everybody else is doing, isn't it? We're followers by nature. We're followers. I'm talking about when you're by yourself. I'm talking about in your, your time alone with God. Is there a desire to really worship Him, to adore Him? Psalm 95, two, the Bible says, Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with songs. In Psalm 100, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you land. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endures to all generations. Do you desire to worship God on your own? without the, the corporate experience? Are you worshiping God on your own without the corporate experience? Are you finding times that where you're just praising God for all that he's done for you, worshiping and adoring him just for who he is? Uh, do you worship God? Do you desire that? And do you desire, the practical atheist has no desire to know God on the personal level. Again, because they don't want to acknowledge his presence. And even if they do, they, they, they think, well, he's way off out there somewhere. There's no desire to know Him personally. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, God commands His people. He says, well, He tells them, He says, If you seek Me with all your heart, He said, you will find Me. When you seek Me with all your heart and with all your soul. Seeking God, desiring to know God personally. First Chronicles 22 in verse 19, David is telling the leaders of Israel and his son Solomon, as they get ready to build the temple, he said, Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Now this was a great undertaking, the building of the very first temple. It was in David's heart to do this. He and uh, God told him he wasn't going to do it, so he's entrusting this to his son Solomon. He's gotten all the materials together. This was the greatest undertaking of, of David's reign. And now he's, he's not going to get to do it, but he's entrusting it to his son Solomon. But instead of focusing on the building of this building, he tells them it's not about the temple. It's not about the experience at the temple. He says, set your heart, set your soul to seek the Lord your God. That's the main thing. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter, 20, chapter 12 and verse 14, One of the kings of Israel by the name of Asa says he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. You know what that verse tells me? You're in one of two camps today. You're either seeking God or you're doing evil. There's not a middle ground. Don't let the devil deceive you. There's not a middle ground. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's no gray. You're either seeking the Lord, or you're doing evil. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and what? Turn from their wicked ways I'll hear from heaven I'll forgive their sin I'll heal their land you know David said there was one thing one thing that he wanted more than anything else one thing Psalm 27 4 he said one thing I desire here's my ultimate desire this is what I'm going to live for he said this is what I'm going to seek I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You know what he's saying? My number one purpose in life, my number one goal is to just be with God. I just want to be with God here. I want to be with God wherever I'm at. I just want to be with God. Psalm 73, he repeats this. He says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Haggai calls Jesus the desire of all nations. What do you really desire? The practical atheist has no desire for God. Oh, they say they do, but their life doesn't show it. If you were to hold up a magnifying glass to your life, God is. He's examining your life. Is there enough evidence? Is there enough evidence to prove that you do believe in God? Do you have a desire for God? Do you have a desire for the things of God? Six green beans sat on his daughter's plate, untouched, just six. Mike Benson says that sort of thing usually didn't bother him, but that night it did. Eat your green beans, he told his eight-year-old daughter. Dad, I'm full of the top, he said. You won't pop. She said, Yes, I will pop. He said, Risk it. It'll be okay. Dad, I could not eat another bite. Mike knew that they were having her favorite dessert, so he asked, How would you like a double helping of pumpkin pie with two dollops of whipped cream on top? That sounds great, she responded as she pushed her plate back ready for dessert. Well, how can you have room for a double helping of pumpkin pie with two dollops of whipped cream and not have room for six measly green beans? She stood up from her chair. She pointed to one side of her belly, and she said, This is my vegetable stomach, (laughs) and over here is my meat stomach, and they're both full. But here's my dessert stomach. It's empty, and I'm ready for dessert. Can I get a witness? What we eat reveals what we're really hungry for. What are you eating? what you're really hungry for is it this is it that is it him what you're eating is what you're really hungry for practical atheist no hunger for God but they want to be with him in heaven they might not make it unless they repent one more briefly A practical atheist has no enjoyment of God. They don't enjoy Him. That's why they don't hunger for Him. That's why they don't acknowledge His presence. I just don't enjoy being with God. He's no fun. That's not what David said. Psalm 1611, David said... And your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, David's not saying that just sitting down with your nose in the Bible or on your knees in prayer, that's not just what he's referring to. He's referring to a life lived and the acknowledgement and awareness of God's presence a life lived constantly communing with God. A life lived even when failing. You get up, you acknowledge that you failed, and you come back. He says, in your presence, that's the fullness of joy. It doesn't get any better than this. Have you ever seen those things that, that say it just doesn't get any better than this? I see people say that about certain things. I think, really? Really? That's that's as good as it gets. I mean, that's beautiful. That's cool. That's nice, but uh, I'm counting on something better. I've been to a lot of beautiful places, done a lot of wonderful things, but I haven't yet been to that one place. I have yet to have that one experience that I could say it doesn't get any better than this. Because the book says it does, it will. It's when I'm not interrupted by temptation anymore. It's not where I'm interrupted by my failures anymore. It's where I'm not perplexed with the problems of humanity like cancer and other diseases and sicknesses. It's a place called heaven where I'm not interrupted anymore when nothing but me and the presence of God is is consuming me. I'm consumed with Him. It does not get any better than that. Nothing on earth is going to fulfill you like the presence of God. And it's time God's people really believe that. Oh, we'll say we believe it. But listen, you only believe as much as you live. You only believe as much as you practice. If it's true that God is our all-consuming passion, if it's true that we really believe in Him, that He's there, then we need to start living. Like we really believe that he's there and quit ignoring him every day of our lives, but Sunday or maybe 15, 20 minutes in the morning. And then we go about our merry little day doing our own little thing. We start living in the light of his presence daily, moment by moment. But many of God's people are living like atheists. We say we believe. But can the world tell the difference between what they say and how we live? They can see the difference, they can hear the difference of what we say and what they say, but can they see the difference in what they live and how we live? That's where the water hits the wheel. And many Christians are not enjoying God. David said, you have made me exceedingly glad with your presence. David said in Psalm 43, 4, God is my exceeding joy. I think all of us, this altar is not full for the, big enough for the whole church, but I want to tell you, every one of us here today, every one of us here today, ought to be convicted and fall on our faces before God and say, God, that's not true of me. I don't hunger for you like I should. I act like you don't exist many times. I don't hunger for you. I don't enjoy you. But I come to church on Sunday, and I lift my voice as if I've been living like that every day of my life, and I know I haven't. I'm a hypocrite. And God, I need forgiveness. I want to live tomorrow like I started today. Every one of us. Every one of us. We ought not be able to stand and sing this next hymn, All That Thrills My Soul Is Jesus, because we know it's not true. We'd be hypocrites to sing that song. Wouldn't we? So maybe we should just have it played and fall on our faces before God and say, God, I'm sorry. But I've let the things of this world thrill me more than you. I've lived like an atheist. And I'm sorry. Create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a right spirit. Give me the hunger and the longing for you that you created for me to have. It's there. It's there. It's a God-shaped piece of your heart that nothing else will fit but Him. Oh, you've tried to fit those square pegs in a round hole, but it's just not fitting. It doesn't work. So, June, I'm just going to ask you to play that hymn. And if you don't want to play it, you don't have to play it. But I'm going to ask you to play that. I'm just going to ask you to do what you think the Lord's telling you to do. You say, man, if I come down to the aisle, people are going to think I'm a practical atheist. Well, who cares? God already knows. I'll be down here with you. Because all of us, all of us. Like I said, there may not be enough room at this altar, but there's room at your pew. You can just bow over your pew, the front of your, the back of the pew in front of you. You can kneel where you are. You can do whatever, but you put your face before God and ask God to forgive you and to help you. Because so I know we all need it. We all need it. Heavenly Heavenly Father, I don't preach this having it all together. You know that. I can't sing that next hymn. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. Without being a hip-hop. Change my heart. Help me to repent. Help us all here today to be, to make you that one thing that we desire above all else. Holy Spirit, help us this morning to repent all of our heart to be changed so that we can enjoy those times of refreshing from your presence and Lord whatever people need to do today you know and Lord if there's anyone here that's never been saved truly converted Lord, I pray that you would draw them to you. Convincing them, first of all, of their sin and their need of a Savior. But convincing them of your great love and readiness to forgive if they'll repent and come to you. Lord, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. We're all in need of repentance. Lord, help us to repent today and to live and to be living proof of your existence. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.